Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello there, and welcome to another episode of New Books in Asian American Studies, a podcast of the New Books Network. I'm Chris Patterson, a co-host of the network, and my guest today is Valerie Francisco Minchavez, who is an assistant professor of sociology and sexuality studies at San Francisco State University. We'll discuss her book, The Labor of Care, Filipino Migrants and Transnational Families in the Digital Age, which was published by the University of Illinois Press in April 2018. Labor of Care traces how globalization, neoliberalism, and new technology have reshaped migrant care work from the Philippines. The book is the result of five years of research, interviewing migrant women and participating in their communities, as well as intermittent trips to the Philippines, where Dr. Francisco Menchavez spent time speaking with the families and the extended families of migrant workers. Her book attempts to redefine notions of care and overseas employment that focuses solely on the workers' labor, and rather to understand a form of what she calls multidirectional care, which describes the ways in which transnational family members activate multiple resources, people, and networks to redefine care work in the family. Dr. Francisco Menchavez explores this larger network of care to understand how migrant work affects gender roles and creates new solidarities. So let's introduce the author, Valerie. Thank you so much for coming on the show. How are you? I'm well. Thank you so much for having me on on the show, Chris. Uh, I'm very excited to have you here. So um, let's just begin with the uh, the subject of the book. So why write about migrant workers? What brought you to the subject? Yeah, um, for me, I was doing my graduate work in New York City, and um, a huge and stark kind of scene that really got me to think about this. Um, you know, starting research uh, with this community is I was in Central Park uh, and there were all of these Filipino women um, in in one of the playgrounds. And I got to talking with them. We were speaking in Tagalog or Filipino um, with each other. And then at the end of that um, play date or, you know, the hour that we spent there, um, they all sort of um, packed up these children that looked nothing like them into these strollers. And um, it was just this very stark image of these Filipino women, you know, pushing strollers with children that didn't look like them at all. And um, to me, it, it was that sort of moment that drew me into the idea of, okay, so, you know, Okay, the the idea of Filipinas working all over the globe as domestic workers has been, you know, you know, studied and even lots of films and teleseries made out of them. Um, But I started to wonder about, you know, the folks that they left behind in the Philippines and, you know, what it required to really have these women um, be so far from their children, their husbands, their own parents, their siblings. you know, what kind of work it took to, you know, maintain that kind of arrangement. Um, Additionally, I think, you know, 
to be quite honest, you know, I'm a product of a transnational family. Um, my my family immigrated here in 1992. It was my mom, my brother, and my sister and I um, immigrated to the Bay Area, and we left our father in the Philippines for de- a, you know a decade. And um, we, I mean, I think that that is my was my first sort of you know entree to the idea of like how folks really keep their families together, even though they're apart, you know, back then we sent like, you know, these, um, recordings on cassette tapes. Do you remember that? Chris? Do that? Like kind of do like recording on the cassette tape where you record your voice and then, um, and then you send it back to the Philippines and then my father would do the same with us. Um, and, you know, over time, of course, obviously that has changed, but, um, it took a lot of work to, continue being a family and especially even when we are reunited it was the work of um caring for one another from afar over that long-term um separation that really you know helped us get on a good foot when we were reunited here in the u.s Mm -hmm. and so you talk about this also in the book as a type of labor uh or type of care labor um Mm -hmm. as you mentioned like learning to control the technology of the cassette tape uh, for you and your family, but then today learning the technology of like Skype and, and Facebook. Right. Right. Uh, I mean, that's one of your central concepts. Maybe we could just go right there. What, um, it's in your title, right? The labor of care. What, yeah. uh, why name this book labor of care? What do you want to say about, uh, you know, other forms of care, paid and unpaid, and yeah. unseen forms of care? Yeah. I, I, I think it was really important to me when, you know, as, as you know, as an author who, who has published multiple books, um, when you're, when you're like sitting down to, um, name your book, you know, it's like almost as hard as naming your child. You're like, <laughs> I mean, you know, like it's stuck to you for the rest of your life, but you know, it's really a riff off of the idea of a labor of love. Right. Mm. Um, and of course that title got booted by the press because it's too cliche or whatever. Um, but I think the labor of care really fit for me because when we think about care work, particularly in sociology in my discipline, sociologists of the family are always thinking and in writing about care work as number one, a gendered work, mm-hmm. but it also is like ultimately attached to a very like, nurturing warm fuzzy feeling you know that always makes you feel good and you know it's the work of women and you know and it is right and I don't mean to devalue that mm-hmm. um, but as a Marxist I really wanted to um, write about care and all of its productive and socially reproductive um, sensibilities right and, and what I mean by reproductive and social reproductive labor I just mean that you know Capital and in, in, in the world that we live in, capitalism doesn't necessarily see unpaid work as something that um, is not valued, right? I mean, so, so many um, domestic workers from domestic um, from housekeepers to nannies to caregivers to the elderly are underpaid, exploited, right? I mean, there's so much evidence for the fact that capital does not value, you know, the sort of caring work, but. To me, and I think many other scholars, we see that this is like the most imperative work. This is the work that allows people to go out to work today. You know, like mm-hmm. today, someone's caring for my children so I can be at work and, you know, be in conversation with you, Chris. And similarly with you, you know, um, 
Yeah, care- someone's taking care of my child <laughs> so I could talk here with you. Exactly. <laughs> and, you know, I think it's it was important for me to call, you know, put juxtapose those words, labor and care together mm-hmm. to be able to, you know, argue that, you know, caring is a particular type of work. We should value it. We should see it as such. Um, and it's it's not easy, right? I mean, mm-hmm. you know, a day with a infant or a day with a toddler will show you exactly how not easy, <laughs> right? Even not, if it's your own, it's, it's still very not, difficult. It's not, it's not really easy work. And sometimes it doesn't come from a warm, fuzzy place, but, you know, you have to do it. Um, and you, you have to attend to it just like a, a, you know, a job. So that's sort of, the, the the reasoning behind the title is I really wanted to make sure that folks understood that care work is is a is a valid type of work and and, and it's a valuable um, dimension in our society. Yeah, and one of the um, the spreading out the, the the broadening of that term that you do in the in the book is that it's it it is the the like domestic worker employee uh, the migrant woman who is doing <clears throat> most of the work, but there's also so many different networks of like labor going on um, between her and, and the family. Um, and, um, and that's one thing that I found, like, I don't think has, I've seen any other work about domestic workers, how the, the children are also doing a kind of care labor, you know, the uncles and aunts mm. and, and the people in the Philippines that you go and interview, right. Are also a big part of the story. Um, mm-hmm. So maybe we can just get to that term that you use the, uh, the transnational family term um and what you what you mean by that yeah. like you spend some time um i think i'll just quote how you define it you say that i maintain that the family is often deployed as an auxiliary mechanism to the neoliberal strategy of managed and regulated labor migrations of filipinos and i, I think you've rephrased this a couple times um, yeah. in similar terms of how the family is itself is deployed um, yeah. in some ways. so can you uh, explain what you mean there and how is family deployed in that way yeah absolutely i mean i think we see it particularly in the political con- uh, climate in the United States how mi- the how migrant family separation under the Trump administration the completely horrible and you know just blatant violation of human rights happening in the United States that migrants and families in that um, in that you know uh, formula migrant families like juxtaposed next to each other um, is. Uh, um, is an issue of contention here in the United States. For the Philippines, I think that oftentimes the scholarship around migration has really seen the migrant as the center or that's who we should follow to study um, how migration and the systems of migration in the Philippines work, which is totally right. And I'm building off of really important Asian Americanists like Robin Rodriguez and Anna Romina Guevara, mm-hmm. you know, Martin Manalansan, like folks have been studying the Filipino migrant as, uh, as evidence of the Philippine labor export policy, um, and not however, and I think many of them imbue their work with a discussion on the family, but we don't, we haven't, um, I wanted to do a study that centered the family as um, a result and a precondition actually of migration. Um, so many, if, 
if there are 5,000 people leaving the Philippines every day, um, which is that's the most recent statistic, that's 5,000 families that are affected uh, by someone's absence. And I think um, the Philippine state in its sophistication of migration management has not only pulled the Filipino migrant as a sort of like, you know, prime subject of neoliberal migration, but it's also has to pull in um, the Filipino family as a part of its sort of schema to, you know, increase profits or the national GDP via migration remittances. Um, I think it's, it, it was really clear to me that, that, I wanted to study the transnational family as a whole um, because like I was saying to you earlier, you know, take the example of my father um, in the Philippines. He, you know, was doing a lot of the things um, on his own when his family was, when, when we were here in the States to keep our home, you know, um, to continue technology. Right. And I think um, in this day and age, I think the, it's so important to see the Filipino family, um, as part of the migration industry, because they're really absorbing a lot of the, you know, the the impacts of their family members' migration, um, and not just in the sort of Western nuclear biological sense. I think Filipinos in the Philippines and Philippine scholars have de- de- have defined families not just as like your mom, dad, and two and a half children with a dog. Um, you know, the cultural value of Pakikisama and, um, you know, which means like the being with, right, means that like Filipinos have defined their families as like extended for, for forever, you know. Um, I have titos and titas now that I'm like, wait, you're not my <laughs> real uncle? You're not my real aunt? They're like, no, I'm just a family friend. And, um, and so... Oh, I have that too. <laughs> so many people I can't even... I don't even know if they're actually related to me. Yeah. Um, sorry to interrupt you, but yeah, I, I, uh, on that note of, you know, your own personal experience and, uh, and how that influenced your book, uh, you do focus quite a, a lot on the children and the young people who are affected by the migration. Um, and, you know, I think you, you'd say that they are like usually seen by sociologists as people like left behind in a sense. Mm-hmm. Um, and so can you talk about the impact of migration for those young people? It's a, it's a pretty mixed, mixed spot from what I remember. Like some are very, some yeah. are very obedient, dutiful, and others are dutiful only kind of out of spite or something. Yes, yes, you're right. I mean, um, first I want to just um, speak on the issue of studying young people in migration. Mm-hmm. Um, I also, you know, wanted to register in the sociological literature that, you know, the young people are not these like passive like hands out right like waiting for their monthly allowance and some of them are right okay but they are also really part of negotiating what it's like to be in the transnational family um i i say this because um i actually participated during my writing of this book in a workshop at the university of toronto with a colleague um kabita chakabortri and she organized this workshop on children and emotions. Um, and I learned so much from that workshop and just how sort of adultist the migration studies literature is because, well, you know, I mean, I think for practical reasons, it's hard to do research with young people. Yes. So yes. Um, but also I don't think people 
are seeing migration, if they're not child migrants, you know, um, as necessarily as folks who are, you know, particularly impacted by migration. And um, in my research with um, mothers in New York City, man, it, I mean, they would only be talking about their kids, you know. And then when I went back to the Philippines, the kids were would be the most sort of active in the care negotiations of the transnational family. It wasn't even the adults, you know? Um, and I think a huge part of that is like the onset of um, technology um, in, in their, in their lives. You know, m- many of these migrant mothers came to the United States States, like what I would define as like midlife course, right? Like this idea in sociology is that we all die at a hundred. No, I'm just kidding. Um, no, um, like, I think many of these migrants, migrant women thought that, you know, they were going to, you know, grow up in the, in the Philippines, have a family and stay there, live there and die there. Right. Mm. In the middle of all of that, many of these migrant women were like, well, to be a mother, I have to leave. I have to, you know, um, support my family in some way. Um, and so. These these mothers, I mean, they don't use com- they never use the computer. They n- never thought that they would have to, you know. And so, I think the the kids would really be the folks who um, would be like, okay, I gotta teach you this. We gotta, you know, we gotta um, help you figure out your, you know, Facebook account and password that you remember or whatever. And I think it was the children. That's not just about the technology piece. It was about the um, you know, paying bills, balancing the checkbook and keeping the home clean, things like that. Um, children were so active in helping kind of figure out this transnational family arrangement. Um, and, and yeah, so of course some of them, it's not, I don't want to paint like a picture of just like all obedient Filipino children in the Philippines because that's also really um, problematic. That's <laughs> Right. Yeah, you have some great anecdotes in your book about <laughs> so some of the rebellious children. Yeah, the rebellious is one way um, to put it. I think, and, and some of them are like rebellious, and then some of them are like uh, like when we were young, Chris. Mm-hmm. Right? Like we didn't always agree with our parents. Right? Like it's not like they're a particular you know rebellious because you know their mothers are absent. Um, Perhaps they are, but I also think that, you know, they're also young people that are like hormonal and mm-hmm. like trying to figure out life without their mom around. And so I think there are particular ways in which emotions um, play up a, a really important factor in that. Um, and, and some of the, some of the young people were like, we don't really have a particular feeling or connection to my my mom like you know um they just pay my tuition and it's kind of it you know um and 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 some of the the children you know felt really grateful and felt really dutiful and so um I think showing that range was really important to me too um to not like you know pigeonhole you know, these children who are in the Philippines as resentful or angry, but also not to just pigeon the hold them as like, these are really good kids and, you know, that they do everything their parents say. Um, so that, that was like a really important, you know, thing for me to tease out in the book. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And they, 
And well, you also talk um, about the the husbands or the the father figures and how that. I mean, so you're kind of humanizing a lot of these figures that are just usually seen as oh, they're the ones who are benefiting from the labor. Uh, but then to actually see their lives is quite different. And so the children is, is very interesting, but then the, hus- the, the fathers also, because, you know, they're not the breadwinners, mm-hmm. uh, but they also don't want to do a lot of the housework a lot of the time. And and so they're kind of put in this, in this position of like not wanting to feel emasculated by, by the, the new industry. Um, so can you talk a bit about, about the, how that kind of gendering process worked? Yeah. And, Thank you, Chris, for saying that I'm kind of humanizing these folks because really that was one of my key objectives was to um, like make sure I tell a story where all the characters, you know, have the potential to care and sometimes have the opportunity to fulfill that potential and other times they fail, you know, and, and don't do that care work. And I wanted to make sure that, you know, I wanted to write it that way. I wanted to write the book where people saw the potential and some sometimes it wasn't fulfilled, right? Um, I think for the men, largely in the in the literature and hey, you know, let's be real, in the Filipino culture, um, Filipino patriarchy is really rampant and you know, not really. It's violent. It's about womanizing. It's about you know having power and not wanting to give up that power. And in the literature, popularly, Filipino men left behind sort of devolve into, like, folks who don't, you know, who take the remittances and, you know, spend it whatever they want and then don't do the domestic work either. So they're just, like, folks that are not really doing, um, stepping up to the challenge, right? Um, But many feminist scholars have taught me that gender is something that's a, it's, it's a process and that it's being constructed all the time. Right. Um, and for actually for the Filipino husbands that, you know, I interviewed it, it, it was really interesting to me to see that some of them actually stepped up and all the way up. Right. Um, really, renewing their role as as fathers as like really internalizing it and then making it their own and it was only possible because um they had a lot of support around it right like they had the migrant mom's sister or auntie or mother guiding them like this is how you cook peanut bit and it was just like a vegetable dish and this is how you iron the clothes and you know sort of transitioning them into this domestic role and so um that like when I was doing ethnography in the Philippines that was really really um stark to me that like these women folk of a family was was really you know um ushering these men into their new roles. Of course, the, the, the men had to have an openness, right? They had to have already let go a bit of some of the Filipino patriarchal logics that they probably grew up in, you know, um, so that they could fulfill this role. And other men totally want, wanted nothing to do with that, right? They Some of the men, um, some of the fathers in the Philippines um, were hurt, were emasculated, were you know, wanted to get back to their, get back, you know, to their 
like sort of head of the household role and didn't want to assume any of the other role, the any of the other labor mm-hmm. of home. Um, so you have that sort of pendulum swinging as well. Um, I think though the argument I was trying to make in that book in the book was about how masculinity can change. It's not this like thing that is just always going to be right. Um, that's if we give Filipino men the opportunity um, and the guidance, right. To break out of that mold of the babaero or womanizer or like the lazy, you know, father that doesn't want to do domestic work, that it's quite possible that, you know, they do take up that role. Not only do they take it up, but they're really, you know, they internalize it. Mm-hmm. I, I think I remember one part of the book where you talk about um, how one of the, the fathers is looking at seeing the um, the mother every day on Skype and just realizing how yeah. exhausted she is and right. just how that exhaustion is wearing her down. And then that kind of forces him to step up, right? And so like, okay, I have to do something about it. You know, <laughs> I have to take this 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 gendered, gendered role that you know was not previously um, part of what he thought was going to happen. Right, right. I think um, that Skype and, and that these types of um, technology really allowed for that. You know, um, back in the day, you know, like when my father didn't see my mom for years, you know, she didn't. He didn't know what it would look like at the end of the day um, with Skype. It, it was. It's absolutely possible. You can see your partner's bags under their eyes at the end of the day. You know what I mean. Mm-hmm. Um, there's no getting around it. And so I think that even humanizes them, you know, to one another. Um, and so that that was really something that also one of the, the fathers in the Philippines told me, you know, and he was like, you know, if I never saw her how tired she was at the end of the day, I probably wouldn't have convinced myself like, hey, you know, you got you got to keep up your end of the bargain while you're here in the Philippines, and mm-hmm. so, um, so shout out to Skype out there. <laughs> um, well, let's talk about technology in a, in a bit, but um, first I want to get to your uh, your your participant observation and um, your work with the uh, community organizations in New York and how that kind of um, influence. I mean, that's the main subject of the book and. I'm not a sociologist, so I don't know. Uh, people have tried to get me to do interviews, and I just won't do it because I haven't been trained. So just a fair warning, I don't know what I'm talking about when it comes to, re- to that kind of research. But I'm interested because you, you said your research takes place over five years, um, and you followed 11 different family constellations. Mm-hmm. I think that included 25 uh, members of families. Um, so can you talk a bit about that, that research process um, you know, what, what led you, what gave you the instinct to follow those routes and, you know, not, not just stay in New York, but also go to the Philippines? Mm-hmm. Um, honestly, as, uh, well, you are doing an interview, Chris, so you are trained by yourself. As I don't podcast. write about it. <laughs> okay. Okay. Um, I, in, in my, um, work, you know, I did ethnography. I began obviously in New York city, Kind of, you know, if you remember what what um, I said in the beginning of, of the interview, um, and most of my participant observation happened in and with community organizations that worked with Filipino migrant workers in um, New York City. Now the organization is called Migrante New York and Migrante New Jersey. But um, when I started there in the um, 
in like mid 2000s, um, there was this place called Bayanihan Community Center, and they had um, a network that was supporting domestic workers. And so I, I would volunteer for them and do a bunch of um, participant observations at their, you know, legal clinics, at their computer classes, at their community events. Um, and then it was when I started to formalize the research method and design. Um, I consulted with the domestic workers who I was, um, the domestic worker leaders there, and they themselves said, you know, if you don't go and interview our families, you're only getting one side of our stories, you know, um, this is, and they were feeling really like that was unfair, you know, that I should go back and, you know, interview the people who are particularly affected by their absence. And, and they were the ones that made it happen, you know, um, introducing me to their children via Facebook, via Skype first, um, before I went back to the Philippines, um, they would tell their children about me. And, you know, if you, if you think about it, that could easily set me up for, you know, not success, unsuccess, not success, right? Mm-hmm. Like these children might be jealous of me or that I get to spend time with their mothers and they don't get to, right? Mm-hmm. But the, the way the mothers talked about the research project was that it was something meaningful to them, you know, that um, they also wanted to see how their lives in the Philippines have changed um, through migration. And so, I think when when I say eleven constellations, I think about um, how a migrant mother is not just the center of the whole world, right? That a, like a constellation in the sky is a collection of different lights and you know stars, right? There's not one center, um, but they are connected in in a way, right? Um, and I think about um, those those constellations in the sort of multi-directional care idea, right, that all of them contribute to, you know, holding up that structure, that constellation. Um, and not not a one person is doing more than the other. Um, and maybe they, like a migrant woman in New York, her dollar goes a long way. But, you know, her dollar wouldn't mean as much if, you know, her, her daughter in the Philippines wasn't turning on the Skype. Right. Um, and letting her into, you know, their everyday life. Right. So I think that 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 formation, that arrangement is um, was really key for me in, in doing this this work. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And there's I think that that chapter about technology is, is very interesting. It has uh, you have great anecdotes all throughout the book, but some of them are very memorable, like when. I think you're you're sitting there and you you're you keep hearing someone doing the dishes and you think like oh I should be doing the dishes like washing my own and then you realize that no one's doing the dishes it's actually on Skype that Skype has just been left on all day yeah, <laughs> so right, like right. listening to what's happening in the Philippines at that moment right uh, you know so how like since you mentioned um, the way that you communicate with your father over cassette tapes you know yeah. how how has technology changed. Um, the entire like concepts of migration and these how these transnational families connect to each other. Yeah, I think that um, you know that anecdote I had about um, you know uh, a plus about doing interviews and in, in, in ethnography is like sometimes your participants will cook really yummy meals for you and you're like yes. <laughs> um, 
like your favorite Filipino dish or whatever. Um, and it was, it was during an interview where I was like, Oh my gosh, you know, like, you know, I should be cleaning up my own plates or whatever. Um, but when, when I heard that Skype, you know, when I heard a migrant woman say, you know, like I just keep the Skype on because I like to hear them. Mm -hmm. I was like, wow, that's so deep. You know, now as, as a, as a mother of two young children, I, you know, I do love hearing when my kids are like talking to each other or like playing with each other or, you know, it's so nice to like, it makes me feel like I'm close to them. And for women who might not have seen their children for one year or five years or 10 years, you know, that audible sound of their children, you know, getting ready for school or, you know, washing dishes you know, it might seem so mundane, but it's not, you know, to them, it's a huge deal to be able to um, hear what their, their children are doing. And so I think one of the key parts of Skype that allows you to, um, you know, that has changed the transnational family really is um, the sort of pre like, I mean, it's like a presence of absence, right? Like there's this, this computer that's open or that back then it was like, a web camera, right? That was really important. Um, so that someone from, you know, thousands of miles away could you could join you. Um, New York and Manila are 12 hours um, in, in time separation. So when some of the domestic workers would be coming home from their jobs at seven or eight, it would, their children would just be getting ready to go to school, right? So they would have been working all day, doing, you know, taking care of other people's children and coming home, turning on the Skype, it would mean a lot to them to hear, um, to hear their, their children, you know, ready, getting ready to start their days. And, and I think that that's a huge change from the past where it was just cassette tapes and um, even letter writing or not getting to see each other at all, only through pictures, right? Mm -hmm. um, that sort of instantaneous connection, it, it really it makes um, the separation that much more bearable. Mm -hmm. But I, I, I do want to say this, you know, my, my big fear with, with this Skype and, t and Facebook thing is that like some Philippine official will one day like hold my book up and be like, look, Dr. Francisco said <laughs> that <laughs> all the families are all right. We just give them all Skype credit or mm -hmm. like, Facebook or, account or, or whatever. Facebook, I, right? Exactly. Yeah. I'll be like, no, you didn't even read my book. You, you know, I do want to say this. Skype and Facebook are tools to alleviate the separation. Mm -hmm. But Chris, on both sides of the, you know, migration spectrum in New York and in Manila, these folks wanted to hug their children on their birthdays. They wanted to be there at the graduation. They didn't want to see it on Facebook later. You know, they would much rather have been there. You know, they would have much rather have been with their families. Um, and so although Skype and, and Facebook have definitely changed the game in terms of keeping, you know, um, in touch and building up intimacies between family members, it's definitely not, you know, it doesn't, it's not a salt. It's not a problem solver. Mm -hmm. This is a problem of transnational family and family separation. Yeah. And it, there's, it's, it has its own little edge to it too. Like uh, in the following chapter, which I think is my favorite, partly because the title, which is caring, <laughs> if, caring if it hurts. 
Um, and I guess I'm a bit cynical, so I'm always like, I'm always suspicious of these like narratives about love and all that. Um, right. But then this chapter is just great because it's it's about the vexation and the straining of relationships within mm-hmm. families, and and even in that, you know, like the anecdotes about Skype. I think there's others in this chapter where it's more about like seeing the Skype as a kind of surveillance tool, <laughs> but by some of the, the kids. Or like, you know, not being able to sneak your boyfriend or girlfriend or whatever into the house because yeah. mom could catch it on Skype. And so right. there was all these, um, I guess, more like it, like fun, like parts that you would never really, that you don't usually hear in, in these kind of narratives. Um, but then you also feel a lot of that strain um, that technology, do- like you say, doesn't just solve, right? Like this, the, the guilt, resentment, the anger, the impatience. Um, having to live up to the duties of being good parents or good good uh, good children, um, and so what were you kind of ho- hoping to to say by saying that you know that even caring for your own children in this case is a type of of care labor, um, and that the children are also, are also helping out in this care labor, and it doesn't necessarily correlate with like heartfelt sacrifice all the time. Right, right. I- you know, um, I'm glad you like that chapter, and I'm glad you're a skeptical person. Because, um, skeptical, that's better than cynical, yeah. Right, okay, so skeptical. <laughs> I think that when we, when, I, when we think about care work, it connotes a particular type of, like, kindness. And I don't want to say care work isn't kind, but there are particular things that people do to care for one another that don't come, always come from a place of like love and, you know, nurturing, right? It's like your mom told you to mow the lawn. You're not like looking at her endearingly while you're mowing it. You're like, I don't want to do this. I'll just do it. So you, I don't want to, you know, you ain't in my face about it. You know what I mean? Or when you're driving, you know, an elder to the hospital, it's not, you're not coming from this place of like ultimate sacrifice. You know, you're just like, I just got to drive you there so that we can all move forward with our day, but it's still work, right? It's still work. And that's what I wanted to get through um, in the, in, in the chapter is that like many people might take up care work and, you know, might be mad, resentful, or even like, like dissociated from their parents or from their migrant mother, but we'll still do it. Right. We'll still finish a college degree. We'll still, you know, call on time, the same time every week. We'll still, you know, pay the bills off as needed. And I think that that still has to count as sort of labor, um, that, that I, I wanted it. I wanted to visibilize it and, make it count as, you know, these people are still doing acts of service um, for their family members, even if it's not coming from a place of love, a place of care. Um, and and I think it's funny because there, there are ways where, you know, kids are like, yeah, you know what I do? I clean one part of the room and then I point the camera there. <laughs> amazing. Just- I must have missed that one. <laughs> She's not going to see, you know, what's behind the computer, right? She's going to see that angle, whatever that angle is. And that angle is always clean. You know what I mean? <laughs> and um, and I think that that also shows ingenuity and innovativeness, maybe in in a way that mothers don't want to hear. Mm-hmm. But it is, you know, um, for, for the children in, in this book, you know, they were always coming up with ways where they could, like, 
help their mothers feel like good about their decision, the really hard decision to migrate away from their kids and stay away. Um, like many kids were, were helping that to help their mothers feel okay with that. Um, and they were also like trying to live their best life. Right. Like in, in the book I write about this, um, this, this guy named Buddy and, and he was like, yeah, for sure. I'm going to be, you know, calling her weekly and, you know, texting her my report cards because if she didn't pay for my tuition, I'd be living this really boring rural province. Mm-hmm. And now, you know, I'm here in the city. So it's not necessarily like Buddy was like super, you know, um, into conversations with his mom. He just, you know, he knew that like if he called her every week, like, like, a, you know, like she expected that he'd get the tuition for his, his university, you know, degree. And so I think that it was, um, that chapter was really about, um, like making visible the kinds of care that had even emotions that were not really nice, you know, behind it. And let's, um, let's talk about the, the lives of the, the the workers in New York City, which we haven't talked about that much, which is mm-hmm. kind of amazing considering it's a book about mm-hmm. the migrant workers and there's so many other constellations, right, that um, mm-hmm. are, also emerge is very fascinating. Um, but I wanted to start with the, um, well, in your last chapter, you call them a kind of community of care mm-hmm. and you, you come up with this, this, you coined this phrase, communities of care. Um, which we you also call queer, but we can talk about that a bit later too. But mm-hmm. I, I want to hear or see if you'll tell the audience how this support network that you work with came to be, because it's a really fascinating and heartbreaking story. And I think it really resists a lot of the um, narratives of like some of, of some groups who are like sponsored by the embassy mm-hmm. or you know they're just ultra nationalists or something like that. And then, but the groups that you work with are have a very kind of organic way of growing and they're also quite critical. And so can you talk a bit about that? Yeah. Um, I never thought of it actually like that, Chris, that like it's actually the last chapter of the book that I start to talk about, particularly migrant women's lives. You're right. You're totally right about that. Like that's really the, the time where um, well, and it's they, great because you get so much content and you like, there's, it's almost like saying that how could we have understood them, bef- you know, these groups before without understanding all of this other stuff too. Yeah, 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 um, yeah. When they come into focus, um, when the migrant women come into focus in the book, um, I I didn't want to talk about um, them as like these individuated, um, you know, subjects. Mm-hmm. I think too often particularly within with the Philippine state's sort of cultural narrative, um, Filipina women migrate on their own volition, their own decision making, right? They they're not even they're not contextualized in this sort of sociological backdrop wherein the decisions to migrate is super constrained by the lack of livelihood in the Philippines and the lack of sustainable development there. And so on the flip side in New York, I wanted to write about them as a community, right? Um, the sociological literature around immigrants and their social network often argues that when migrants come to the United States um, from like the great wave of immigration from, you know, um, Southern Europe and um, like in the, 
in, in the 19, in the late 19th century, they talk about how networks of immigrants, um, allowed for immigrants to become upwardly mobile, mobile and assimilable into the United States. Um, for me, this, and in my ethnography, it didn't feel like Filipino migrants were trying to latch onto one another to become like the best American citizen or even making America their home. I think what they were doing was creating these networks where they could depend on one another um, for particularly specific, you know, um, needs and experiences. Like they, they would hang out with one another because they knew like um, the opening vignette to the book is a mother's day, right? Like this idea of, like they would all celebrate Mother's Day together in this beautiful, you know, community center decked out in purple and pink. And what was stark about that was like there was a room full of mothers, but no children running around, you know, mm-hmm. and all the children would be joining us via Skype, you know, or, you know, video messages that were sent to us on Facebook. Um, and, that community, I think, was really important to focus on because um, not only were they sharing their identities as like mothers, as migrants, as domestic workers, they also started to talk a lot about how they got there. Um, and that's where they start, started to develop a sort of political critique of the Philippine state and the fact that the Philippines are pushing out so much, so much of their, um, of their kababayan or their fellow Filipinos. Um, I think this community of care, um, concept was, was really also informed by Martin Manalensen's, um, global divas and, um, and actually in, in an article that he wrote called queer intersections, um, where he urged, you know, researchers um, of the Filipino diaspora to, th- to think about um, homosociality and sexuality as, you know, as nodes of inquiry. Um, and community communities of care sort of took that up in a serious way um, because of the sort of, all of them were living in, you know, in New York City sharing, you know, three or four bedroom apartments. Mm-hmm women with all women. Right. Um, I, I don't, I didn't necessarily write this in the book. I didn't really know how to write it in about the sexuality piece. And, um, maybe it's one thing that I'll continue to write about in the future, but many of the, the women, um, in my, in, in my sample or in my study also had women partners, you know, develop partnerships with women, sexual partnerships women um and others and others didn't right um but what's also was really stark was that you know they all would you know talk about sexuality all the time talk about sex and and, or lack thereof you know and um these communities of care it would be like boisterous laughing and you know crass filipino humor around sex and sexuality Mm -hmm. um that would bring them together you know um and it would be so funny and um and that that I thought was a really interesting um, like dynamic to focus on, you know, um, in the study. Mm-hmm. And I like the way you you take up that the, the queering of a domestic worker because there's there's also 
I think the way you put it too is that it's partly queer by context or by like circumstance, like being like foreign. The I think you say ninety percent of them or so are do- undocumented, mm-hmm. um, and then having these kind of constraints about sexuality, having to work in the home, mm-hmm. um, like you said, living in same sex communities and in these like boarding houses and things like that. So. <laughs> It's almost like the context that they're in has like queered them in a, in a way yeah, uh, yeah. based on their their migration, and so I thought that was a really fascinating um, uh, way to way to talk about them. Yeah, I also think that you know, following other like queer migration scholars, um, we'll also talk about queering not just about their the their you know corporeal bodies, but that these women are you know jutted into this situation where they're not only queer in their homosociality, but they're also queer migrant subjects, you know, that are disavowed by the United States and disavowed by the Philippine state, you know. Mm-hmm. Um they're they're not necessarily they're they're not necessarily stateless, but mm-hmm. when when things come about, like for example, um when a migrant woman dies, for example, in the case of Feli Garcia, um, who was uh, a domestic worker that died in her home and was in a morgue for languishing in a morgue for two weeks because um, the United States government didn't know what to do with her. She was undocumented um, and the Philippine state wouldn't, you know, um, retrieve her remains and repatriate her remains. Um, they're sort of, they are queer. They're queered by, you know, these uh, regimes of migration and these neoliberal policies against migrants. Um, and so I wanted to also, you know, frame them as such um, because their their queerness isn't just coming from um, their homosociality. It's also produced by institutions. Um, I In this chapter, I also wanted to situate these women's ability to care for one another in this diasporic site, New York City, in as a part of the racialized history of domestic workers um, in, in the United States. Uh, Premila Addison just came out with, or came out with a book maybe a couple of years ago called Household Workers Unite and talking about um, African-American household workers, how they were really the beginning of um, the domestic workers' rights movement today, right? That, um, you know, have, have, have won domestic worker bill of rights in states like California, Hawaii, Oregon, New York, um, with its executive director, Ai-jen Poo, who was just on the red carpet at the golden globes right that we could trace that lineage of critical resistance back to african-american household workers and i wanted to attribute type of critical resistance to these filipino migrants as well um and that they're not only contending with u.s base or american um local racism they're, they're also contending with u.s imperialism um, that has stretched all the way to the Philippines, producing a sort of transnational family, you know, boomerang across um, across the Pacific and across the continental United States. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the, the, you. I think you kind of you sort of just briefly summarized also your conclusion in a way where you broaden out that context um, to the Filipino to the states, uh, uh, the labor brokerage state, and and colonization. Um, and so I think that's. 
Um, so I was going to ask about the, the conclusion, but I think we just went there. Very <laughs> <laughs> good. No, it's great. It's great. Um, and yeah, so the, and that story you told about the, uh, the the woman who died, that's also part of why that domestic worker network exists, isn't it? That they oh. uh, they were like partners in mourning over this figure, wanting and yeah. Uh, um, okay, well, I I'm out of questions now, but why don't we? There's actually several things that your book has as, as kind of um, as things that I'll just remember, you know, takeaways, I guess. And like, so some of these terms like care work, the way you look at care work, uh, your focus on transnational family and new technology, um, your ability to account for all the communities around care. Uh, but what, what kind of practical, or I guess, you know, more everyday reality impacts um, do you envision this book as possibly having on, on future work, you know, the academy and organism and organize, not organism and organizing <laughs> and yeah. activism, activism. Yeah. Uh, yeah. How do you see this book making an impact? Um, I think that, um, you know, I, I wrote and I like insisted to my, to my press, to my editor, who was very kind enough to be like, we don't really do methodological appendix for ethnographies. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I was like, you got to publish this appendix because so much of the logics behind why I did how I did it is in here, right? I think for a practical, for for Asian American studies, a discipline that arose from activism that insisted that that Asian American lives should be studied, but not only studied, but the point was to change the lives of Asian Americans, um, I think it was so important to me to write about participatory action research as a method. Um, It was important for me to write about how we have to see our, the, the research communities that we work with, not just in this extracting sort of, you know, their knowledge or their experience of it, that it should also benefit them in some way that research actually we have to democratize it, you know, that, you know, even domestic workers have a right to um, have systematic and scientific investigation about why their lives are the way they are. And we, ha- we, I think it behooves Asian American studies scholars and graduate students and undergraduate students to how can knowledge benefit um, not only, you know, broaden the literature or come up with new ideas or new angles, but how can it really benefit, you know, the communities that we came from? Um, And so I think practically, I I mean, I think I wanted my, I wanted to write this methodological appendix to urge people to um, think about new types of methods that are community based, community engaged, take um, uh, the research quote unquote, the research as the expert on, you know, these big ticket or big, big institutions, big processes like immigration or neoliberalism. How do we, how can we study those things without studying the most impacted by, you know, the most impacted? Um, And so I think in terms of practicality, I mean, PAR research is not practical. It takes a lot of time and it's hella work because you got to coordinate a lot of things. But I think what it yields is 
much more than this book. You know, um, this book is one product, one product of the research process that I began in, in 2008. Um, in the book in the back there, you, you'll see a flyer for a play that we had put on um, that the domestic workers wrote themselves. And before our dramaturg, um, Vanessa Banta, who's actually, I think, in Vancouver, um, doing her PhD in geography, um, before she dramaturged our, our play, it was 99 pages. They wrote it themselves, you know, and it was this transformative, um, you know, stage production for them. And, you know, um, we can work that that was one product of the research process. This book is another, you know, so I think there are just like so many things to be had. Um, if we think about research, um, qualitative research in a more creative way, in a more community-based way. Mm-hmm. And it follows the, the main impetus of the book too, and seeing like even the labor of this, this book, right, is also something shared and has its own like tr- transnational even networks. Mm-hmm. Yes, absolutely. Um, and, you know, outside of the migrant communities that we were um, that we were researching with, it it also um, has these echoes. Right. Um, the way that we went about writing the play, the Wang Pinai, um, was from these uh, instructional materials that came from the Philippines. Um, from the National Democratic Movement in the Philippines, um, but also migrant organizations in Hong Kong, like UNIFIL mm. and um, Asia Pacific uh, Mission for Migrants, that they had created these materials so that migrants could, you know, tell their stories and then make it into um, a cultural production, right? So even the materials that we use to help um, structure sort of their play was a, a, a product of the sort of transnational network of, of Filipino migrants. Well, that's great. Yeah, and that I think it's your second chapter, first or second, that's on the, that play. Mm-hmm. Sorry if I'm misremembering. <laughs> yeah, that's that's fascinating. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, I think we're out of time, so... Uh, I want to thank you so much for for joining us. It's been very exciting for me to interview you. Uh, I've been meaning to for a while. So uh, do you mind ending uh, the show by sharing any new research you've been working on? Like what comes next after, you know, the five years you spend (laughs) doing this one? Uh, Yeah. What's next for you? Yeah. Um, Right now I'm, I ha- I'm starting a new research project on caregivers to the elderly here in the San Francisco Bay Area. Um, and, you know, I'm starting with a, a quantitative survey, and then I'll be reaching out to um, Filipino caregivers in the Bay Area to do some interviews and ethnography, um, hoping to follow a sort of, you know, uh, um, what domestic work looks like here on this on this side of the, the United States. Um, and many of Filipinos here in the Bay Area are caregivers, unlike in, in New York City, many of them are domestic workers. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's sort of uh, where my, my feet are pointed. Um, I'm also doing some work on Filipino language access here in San Francisco and working with um, Filipino students here at SF State to... Um, to research how Filipino newcomers to the city are getting um, politically incorporated into the city or not. So that's really, um, those two um, avenues are really exciting new um, 
research uh, endeavors for me. That's that's amazing. I was actually going to ask you a question about caregiving or caring for the elderly, and um, and so that sounds like a very natural kind of progression, and <laughs> I'm excited to see what what that yields. Thanks, Chris. This is a really, really um, great interview, and you made me think about the book in so many different ways that I didn't think about before. So thank you so much for uh, featuring the book and giving me an opportunity to talk about it. Of course. My pleasure. Thank you so much for being on the show. Okay. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to my interview with Valerie Francisco Minchavez on her book, The Labor of Care, Filipino Migrants and Transnational Families in Digital Age. If you have any questions, grievances, or suggestions for the books for this podcast, you can message me on the New Books in Asian American Studies Facebook page. Thanks.